We'll turn with me uh, to 1 John chapter 5, where we find ourselves this morning. 1 John 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son." And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come before You this morning, we ask that You would open our eyes and our hearts. Father, there is much in this text um, to commend us and uh, to commend to us this morning, and we pray that you would strengthen us and uh, be glorified in this time. Father, we give you thanks and, and praise for all that you have given us and how you love us. And so make this word come alive by your Spirit to us today, we pray for your glory and our good and joy. Amen. Well, after a couple weeks away from 1 John, we're, we're back in it this morning. And just as a reminder, much of John's purpose in writing was to give assurance to believers, to give them assurance that they are, in fact, believers, that they do know the Lord, that they have eternal life. If we would have read verse 13 of chapter 5, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, throughout the letter... John has called believers to, to live according to the truth, to, to walk in the light, to confess their sins, all the while striving to live in holiness, knowing that they will need to confess their sins. He, he's exhorted believers not to love the world. He's warned about those who teach false doctrine, and, and he's called for wisdom and discernment on the part of believers. He's laid out for us what the love of God is and that we are to abide in that love. And all of this leads to a life that is not only assured, but some of what we see today, it's one that overcomes. It's a life that conquers. Now, in our text this morning, as I said, that's where John goes. He gives us further encouragement, in particular, about overcoming this world and what it looks like to do so. It involves living faithfully, living faithfully the life of faith in all that it encompasses. You see, one of the things we need to understand, too, is that faith is not merely belief. 
It is not merely belief. It's not merely a mental assent to something. Faith in Jesus, believing that He is the Christ, that belief affects not merely our eternal life and not merely our, our intellect, but it affects how we live in this world. And John tells us that those who believe, they overcome and they have eternal life. They are assured. And again, this belief will show itself. It's going to be demonstrated in our lives. Our belief ought to be demonstrated in our lives. This is much of what John has told us throughout this letter, is that our belief is reflected in our lives, that love for God and espousing that can be tested by our lives, by how one lives and how one loves. That you may confess certain things about Jesus, but if it's not followed up by other things, that it calls into question what you confess. Gives us clues about folks. See, believing, living, and loving properly, that leads to our overcoming, our conquering. It gives us assurance of eternal life. And John wants us to live in the life that Jesus came to bring us. So where we pick up in this letter follows John having written extensively about God's love. We looked a lot at that at the end of chapter 4. It's nature and effects, our response to that love, our call to abide in that love, what it produces in us. And he ended on a demand, a demand of those who do love God. Verse 21 of chapter 4, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that leads us into where we find ourselves. That, that, that moves us into verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, in a way, the first part of that statement is fairly obvious, isn't it? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you've been born of God. You've been born again. Something has changed. Something has happened. But John words this very carefully too, though, doesn't he? He says that, that one believes, that not, not just believes in Jesus, but believes that Jesus is the Christ. Believes that he is the Christ. John Calvin set forth some implications of this statement, I think very beautifully. He said, the first truth is that all born of God believe that Jesus is the Christ. Where again you see that, that Christ alone is set forth as the object of faith, as in Him it finds righteousness, life, and every blessing that can be desired. And God in all that He is, hence the only true way of believing is when we direct our minds to Him. Besides, to believe that He is the Christ is to hope from Him all those things which have been promised as to the Messiah. So when we believe in Him, we don't just believe, okay, you are who you say you are, but what all that means, that He is the Christ, that in Him is righteousness and life and all good things, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. You see, Jesus cannot be believed upon in any way other than that He is the Christ and that in Him we are to seek and find our salvation and in Him alone. John is making very clear what orthodox belief is here. There is no ability to believe in a partial Christ and claim to know God. They don't go together. You can't say, I just want, I'll take 60% and, and really claim to know God. No, you take the whole Christ. The whole Christ. 
And John draws an implication from the belief in Jesus and having been born of God. There's something that necessarily follows in this verse. He says, you will love all those who have also been born of God. Those who have been born of God and love God will also love anyone else who has been born of God and knows God. Faith and love are linked here. These two aspects of the life of a believer are actually inseparable. You cannot have faith without love, and you cannot have true love without faith. Faith demands, it requires love. But here's the question. How do we know when we are loving others? How do we know? Sometimes you might think you are, but maybe you're just not sure. So how do we know when we are loving those specifically born of God? Thanks, John. You answer it. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, part of that sounds similar to what John has already talked about. In in chapter 2, verse 3, he said this. He said, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So you've got knowing and keeping. In 3.23, and this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. But those, those actually take a slightly different angle than what he's taking here. Yet they do show us the importance of, of this idea in some ways. But John writes here, by this we know. He is giving us a test. He's giving us a test for determining what it is, uh, uh, what, what actually is love for the brethren. How, how do we know? And I don't think his answer is what we would normally give. If somebody asks you, how do you know you love the brethren? The answer is going to be, well, you know, I care for them. I, um, you know, I serve them. I um, do, do things to, to help uh, be with them. I spend time with them. Things like this. I, I think what John gives is different than what anybody would come up on the street. If you did a man on the street kind of question and said, how do you know when you love your brothers in Christ? I'm not sure anyone comes up with this answer. Because what John is telling us is this, we know we love others when we love God and obey Him. That's his test. That's his answer. So the way we can determine at least one test here, that we love others is this, are we loving God and obeying His commands? So think about what John is writing here. Obeying God's commandments in your own life Being faithful, doing that which is in accord with his will and his design for our universe, that is a constituent element in our loving others. There is no proper love for others without obedience to God. If someone insists on transgressing the law of God in going against his commandments, they're not going to be able to love others. And truthfully, they're actually not loving themselves. They're going against the design of the good creator. If anyone claims to be born of God and proceeds to walk contrary to his commandments, there is reason to question their profession, to warn and exhort them and to pray for them. This is also true of them. They don't love the way God calls them to love as much as they might say they do. So think about this. Taking time to grow in your relationship with the Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, getting to know Him better, prioritizing Him, 
that's actually foundational to you being able to love others well. That is foundational. Putting him first is essential to loving others. This is how we show that we love others. And listen, when we obey, when we love God, we will be brought into greater conformity with Jesus, and that certainly will display greater love to others. If we look more like Jesus in our lives, I guarantee you, you will love people better. You just will. Even people who who don't believe in Jesus think, oh, he was a really good guy. He loved people well. So this is the the first test, he says. And then he continues on with with, with the strain. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Sounds a great deal like what Jesus spoke to the disciples, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or John 15, 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And then he writes this. He says this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So you see there's actually a connection between keeping His commandments and our joy. Again, most people don't think that. That is counter to our culture. That's counter to our fallen nature. Loving God is shown by keeping His commandments. It displays trust and and commitment and contentment in who He is. Folks, we, we demonstrate love not in words but in action, very determined action that shows obedience to God's commands. I think there are so many today, and sadly, even within the church, that view God's commandments as shackles, as chains, as cords wrapped around us that are strangling us and hindering us from anything good or from having any fun in our lives. That's not the biblical view. It's not. Jesus gave us the commands that our joy would be full. That our joy would be full. In fact... It is those who have sought to throw off Jesus' chains that are actually most in shackles. Richard Sibbs is a, a Puritan pastor that I've been reading a lot from lately. He's just amazing pastoral heart, shepherd, just caring, but his insight into Scripture is wonderful. And he, he wrote this. He had this wonderful insight. He says, a man... Till he be in Christ is a slave. Okay, so a man, until he's in Christ, is a slave. Not of one man or of one Lord over him, but he has so many lords as he has so many lusts. So he's not just a slave to one man or one Lord, but to all his lusts and desires. There are but two kingdoms that the Scripture speaks of. There's the kingdom of Satan and darkness and the kingdom of Christ. All, therefore, that are not in the kingdom of Christ, in that blessed liberty, they are in the kingdom of Satan. For though we be all slaves by nature, born slaves, yet notwithstanding by a wicked course of life, we put ourselves into bonds and tangle ourselves. So many sins and so many repetitions of sin, so many cords. The longer a man lives, the greater slave he is. 
See, and the longer you're apart from Christ, actually, the, even though you think you're free, the greater a slave you are. You've run more and more after your lusts and after your desires. And so everyone outside of Christ is a slave to his lusts. Sibs wrote this in reference to 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. There's freedom in believing in Christ. There's freedom in following the ways of Christ, in loving God and obeying His commands. It's not a burden, it's a joy. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, which we use as a church and is a, is a great summary of uh, kind of the systematic doctrine of the church. Chapter 20, paragraph 1, part of it says this, so the liberty or the freedom which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in this, their freedom from the guilt of sin. It sounds good, doesn't it? Freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, and also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but out of childlike love and willing mind." All those things that when we turn to God and repent and believe and obey Him, we are freed from all those things. That is an amazing freedom. That is an amazing freedom. Why would you not love the the, the commands of someone who has done that for you? Who has done so much? His commandments are actually protective and bring us joy. It's in Him. His commands keep us within the design. You don't use a hammer to screw in something. You don't use things against their design. If we stay within the design of what God has set for us and follow His commands and obey Him in that way, it is freedom. And it's in Him And it's in that freedom and in that obedience that we overcome. Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, the truth is those who believe, who have been born of God, they are those who overcome. Now, John John likes that language, overcome. Okay, he got it from Jesus, I think, John 16, 33. We've looked at this many times or I've referenced it many times, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now John uses this again in the last book in our New Testament, in our scriptures, in the, New, in the Bible, in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters of the churches, Jesus' words to the churches, the end of each of those letters ends to some degree in this way to the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes. He's calling for faithfulness. He's calling to continue in faith, to continue in love and obedience. Don't lose your first love. Continue to obey. Walk with me, and you will overcome. By faith in the one who has overcome, we, um, we do overcome through our faith in him, by remaining faithful and staying true. And we overcome the world. And consider what that means. 
He says, you overcome the world. How did John talk about the world? If you just backed up to to chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We overcome those things, the lust of the flesh and the, pride and the, 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 the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. One commentator wrote this, he said, in light of all this, it becomes clear why it is not burdensome for believers to obey God's commands and love one another, and how that relates to their having been born of God and overcoming the world. Those who have been born of God have overcome the worldly tendency to satisfy their own sinful cravings, and as a result, they are, to free, they are free to show love to others and so fulfill God's command. We're freed of our own pursuit of our own lusts so that we can love others well. And then we read, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? really starts off with a rhetorical question that the answer is nobody. Nobody, nobody overcomes the world unless you've been born of God, unless you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, because it's in Jesus that we overcome. Folks, think about this. I mean, walk into a bookstore if you could find one anymore. Um, I think there's one maybe in Westchester still. But walk into one, and you can find self-help books everywhere on how to overcome, how to beat this, how to beat that. And and, and some might actually have some marginally decent advice. But in reality, none of them can overcome. Without faith in Christ, there is no way we can face down the evil, uh, the the ideologies, the helplessness, the despair, the self-defeat that this world throws at us every single day. We can't beat that without faith in Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, as one has written, even the most successful life is swallowed up in the defeat of death. Even the most successful life, you know, it's not he who dies with the most toys wins, it's he who dies with the most toys still dies. So we need Jesus. We need the Son of God. And John tells us that benefit here of overcoming the world, learning to love. And he also gives us encouragement in this too of how trustworthy that faith is because he gives us the testimony of Jesus. So look at the next verse, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, this next section, as I said, is about the testimony regarding Jesus, that there's ample evidence to believe. There's ample evidence, ample testimony, and also believing or not believing is not neutral. It is not neutral. It is not something you can merely take or leave. There are real implications to the decision. Now, this verse is difficult to comprehend, okay? It is. It is just difficult. Part of it is clear. Parts of this very clear is the Spirit testifies to Jesus. The Spirit is the truth, and therefore, this testimony is true. But what is it with this water and blood thing? What is John talking about here? 
And it's not easy to determine part of it because we don't exactly know what the secessionists, those who left uh, the church, were teaching. So we don't exactly know. It's just, it's a little bit more difficult to figure out. And there's various views that have been put forth over what these mean, whether they refer to the sacraments or a fulfillment of the law, the idea of cleansing in the water and the sacrifice and the blood. Those don't necessarily fit the context of John's letter. They're good ideas, I guess, in some ways. Um, some will take it to refer to Jesus' physical birth. Perhaps uh, it takes both of them that way. Perhaps combating docetism and this idea that Jesus just seemed to be um, a person and real, um, and emphasizing Jesus' incarnation then, which goes along with a lot of what John has talked about. Another view purports that they both refer to the crucifixion, where you see in, in John 19 that um, blood and water flowed from his side when the centurion pierced his side uh, that for, to show that he, he really did die. But Honestly, neither of those really take into account that it appears in the wording of this that the cessationist agreed with by water, but not with by blood. Because he says, not with water only, but with water and blood. Okay, so they, they agreed with part, but, but not with the whole. So in, in looking at this, we have to remember that these three together, the, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, are all witnesses. They all testify. If you look at verses 7 and 8, that's what it says. They, these, these agree, and they testify to this. Now, the majority view on, on what this is talking about, and, and where I fall with a little adjustment, is that the water represents Jesus' baptism. Um, for the most part, his baptism in the Jordan, the Spirit descended on him. There's testimony from God as the, the, uh, the, the Spirit descended as a dove, and we heard the Father. John the Baptist recounts this, John 1, 32 to 34. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see, see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There's a witness being born. But I think it's a bit more than just this act, because a lot of these things are active, that it's Jesus' actual ministry on earth, his ministry of baptism. Now, Jesus didn't baptize, but his disciples baptized. So throughout that, and John talks about that in his gospel multiple times, this idea of water being a part in this baptismal ministry of Jesus. And then I would say that the second part refers to his crucifixion, the blood, the sacrifice of Christ, that Jesus truly died upon uh, the cross and took the sins of his people. It fits with 1 John 1.7, where it says we have the, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So all three of these together, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, testify. And throughout the New Testament, we see that, don't we? We see the, the Spirit testifying. Uh, he witnesses the birth. We, we saw that the baptism. His teaching um, uh, throughout His ministry, the, the Spirit is at work. John 15, 26 and 27, Jesus said this, But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The simple point is this, okay? So let's not ultra confuse it. It's just it's a simple point. All three of these testify to who Jesus is, okay? The promised Messiah, the Son of God, that is who Jesus is, and they all point to that. Now, I do have to mention one more difficulty, though, 
because some of you might be reading from the King James or the New King James Version. And when I read verses 7 and 8, you thought, you left some things out. Because in that, it actually reads this. It says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And these are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. This is what is known in scholarship as the Johannine, so John's, comma. Not the, a little punctuation mark, but comma meaning a, a phrase. The Johannine comma. Okay? It is virtually universally agreed upon that this was a latter edition, that this was not written by John, that others put it in to agree. It, it doesn't say anything contradictory to any doctrine of Scripture that we have, but the earliest Greek manuscript that that appears in is from the 10th and the 18th century, and then only very few, and it doesn't appear in a Latin manuscript until after the 7th century. So the, the simple fact of that is that it's, here's the thing, it doesn't add anything and it doesn't take away anything to not have it. So that's it, okay? So I address that difficulty. It, don't worry about it, okay? Just keep reading through it. It's saying what it says, okay? John's point remains. The significance of Jesus cannot, and here's the point in many ways, the significance of Jesus cannot be rooted in his teaching alone, coming by water, his ministry, that's important, but his death and resurrection are what proves who he claimed to be. You have to have it all, and you have to have the testimony of the Spirit. All this is testified to us by the Spirit. He opens up the Word of God and leads us into all truth. Now, from there, John continues, verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now this starts with a very simple argument, moving from the lesser to the greater. If you, if you're willing to receive the testimony of men, then you should receive the testimony of God because God is greater than men. So if you're, willing to, if you're willing to take men's testimony in court, men or women, if you're willing to take that and say, yes, that's the truth, you ought to take God's testimony. Okay. Folks, this is not neutral, okay? He, he says these things, whoever does not believe God has, has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. John's not a pluralist. He's not. He, he, he would not, uh, he's not a relativist. He would not be good with, with the statement, it's my truth. The, well, you know what, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. John's not good with that at all. He, 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 would, not, he would not ride with that, okay? What, what is true is true, and the message about Jesus is true. It is God's testimony. And so, in essence, what he's saying is, if one does not believe in Christ, if one does not believe in the testimony of the water, the blood, and the Spirit, and all this else, they make God a liar. You're calling God a liar. They accuse him of lying in regard to his son. Now, they may or may not do that belligerently, but that's in essence what is happening. Whether you're somebody who's really antagonist, uh, one of the new atheists or something along those lines, uh, a Richard Dawkins or, or something, or you're just the normal Joe in the street who's like, uh, I don't know. 
Both are making God a liar. Because you're saying, what you have said isn't true. And that matters. But it's more than that because, I think it's heightened because the testimony is this. Look at, look at verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the testimony. And, and this is the assurance that we have as believers. If you have the Son, you have life. But on the flip side, if you do not have the Son, you do not have life. So, folks, John has written all of this, I think, to encourage us, to exhort us, to push us forward in our faith and in our belief daily, in, in loving God, in understanding that, that, yes, it's good to love God, to obey His commands. That's how we show love to others, which is something we, is required of us as a believer. If, if we are born of God, we are to love all those who are born of God. And that as we believe, as we do what He calls us to do, the love and obedience, we overcome. And think through, again, what all we overcome. We overcome the world. We have freedom in Christ. But not only do we overcome in this life, but we have eternal life with Him, eternal life in Christ. So my plea this morning is, is simple. Love God, obey His commands, and love others. Love God, obey His commands, and love others, and call others to do the same, because it's not a neutral decision. This is a decision of life and a decision of actual joy and freedom from bondage and slavery. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we give you, we thank you for your word and all it says for us. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds. Lord, encourage us in our love for you, encourage us in obedience, encourage us in our love for others. Grow us more and more and give us assurance as we do love and live for your glory and as we overcome the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.